Well, friends, as you turn to your Bibles, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Let's go ahead and turn. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. We've been studying wisdom and the theme of wisdom and what it looks like to have wisdom. We've been defining wisdom as the skill of godly living. Today, we're doing that with parents and with parenting. Let me start with a story. Let me start with a story. How many of you have heard of George H.W. Bush? How many? Yeah, most of us have heard of him. Most of us either remember him as president or remember when he died a couple years ago. I remember in Houston, we got to see the train carrying his body go by. Can I say this about George Bush? Some are like, ooh, he brought up a Republican. Where are we going, right? Can we say this about him? Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you have to acknowledge this man lived an amazing life. This man lived an amazing life. He was shot down in World War II as an Air Force pilot. It was really an Army pilot. The Air Force hadn't been born yet. Had to throw that in. He was really an Army pilot, shot down, escaped captivity, survived. He went on to become a successful businessman, a multi-millionaire. He went on to become a senator, the ambassador to China, the director of the CIA, which has got to be one of the coolest jobs on planet Earth, right? Then he became a vice president to Ronald Reagan, and finally, we all know, he's the president who saw the Berlin Wall crumble, the Soviet Union collapse, and he's the man who spearheaded the effort to stop Saddam Hussein in his tracks. Whether or not you like his politics, you've got to say, that's a pretty accomplished life. Can we all agree on that? Here's the thing. Towards the end of his life, someone asked him, President Bush, sir, what would you say out of all that you've done, what would you say your greatest accomplishment is? You ready for what he said? Here's what he said. The kids still want to come home. His kids still want to see him. His kids love him. I am told that if you ever talk to his son, George, the one who became the president, I know that if you talk to Jeb Bush, one of his other sons, they stand in awe of their father. Who in this room does not want to be a father a mother, a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, where you leave that kind of legacy. When we are sitting in our rocking chairs, isn't that one of the only things that will truly matter in this world? Our children, our spiritual children will be our legacies, they will be our trophies. Who does not want a life like that? How do we get it? How do we get it? We need wisdom. We need to take the skill of godly living, and we need to apply it to parenting. Who in here has been a parent and never needed help? Who in here has known in every circumstance, every situation, what to do with teenagers, with little ones that won't sleep, right? Write a book. I will help you write it, and we will get that building paid off very quickly if you can do that, right? We all need help. And in Proverbs 22, verse 6, we have probably the third most famous passage in all of Scripture after John 3, 16, after Psalm 23. Proverbs 22, 6. Do any of you know it? Can you say it with me? Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Friends, that is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And in these words, we find holy help. We find good and godly guidance. How are we going to take this apart today? How are we going to examine this verse, wring it like a washcloth, squeeze it like an orange, and just get all that good out of it? 
here's what we're going to do. Here's the three places that we are going this morning. We've got to remember. That's the theme. We've got to remember. As we read this proverb, we need to remember. What is it, though, that we need to remember? We've got to remember this. Number one, we have to remember both types of dedication. Both types of dedication that are required to train up a child. We've got to remember. What's the second thing that we have to remember? The second thing that we have to remember is this. We have to remember who they are and who they are not as youth. The third and final thing that we will see is this. We have to remember. We have to remember, no matter what our conscience tells us, no matter what Satan tries to get into your heart or into your mind, we have to remember that you will make an impact. Sound good? Let's roll. Let's go to this first point. We have to remember both types of dedication. What do I mean? How do you get that from train up? Well, let's explore that. Let's camp on that. Let's just look at this first word in the Hebrew, which is two words in the English, train up. The Hebrew word hanak, hanak. What does this word hanak get at? Here's the thing. This word is used in the Old Testament only four times. Once here, once in the sense where Jews would dedicate their home, they would hanak their home, and they would dedicate it to the Lord. The other two times it's used is when the Jewish nation dedicated the temple to the Lord. Whether it was their house or the house of the Lord, they hanaked. They dedicated their home, the home that their children would be raised in, to the Lord. This is the first sense of the word dedication. This is the first type of dedication we need to keep in mind as we train, as we raise our children. They must be dedicated to the Lord. They must be consecrated to the Lord. This is so hard when you are a parent and your kids are so cute. They are the Lord's. Ultimately, I want to say this very kind, see the smile on my face, they belong ultimately to him. They're on loan. They are on loan. We have a stewardship. We have a privilege. We have a high task. We get to aim them at Jesus. We get to dedicate them to the Lord. We get to see them dedicated, consecrated to the Lord, running after Jesus. That is the first sense of the word, train up. That is the first type of dedication that we need. The second type of dedication is this. It's the dedication that you and I have to show as parents, Sunday school teachers, grace students leaders. We have to be dedicated, meaning we have to persevere. We have to be committed. We have to be consistent. We have to put out continual effort. We have to be dedicated to the task of dedicating them to the Lord. Where do we get that from in the text? I think it's so implied in the word train up, train up. Training means work. You know what I learned in my last assignment in the army where I was responsible for training officers? I learned that it takes more time as the trainer than it does to be the trainee. Do any young mothers out there ever feel that way? Yeah, <laughs> I, see, I see a lot of yes, and it's emphatic. Yes, training means hard work. In fact, look at the rest of that first line where it says, train a child up in what? The way he should go. You know, if you translated that literally, we call it a wooden translation. If you translate it literally from the Hebrew, it would read, train a child up 
from the mouth of his way. That's weird, right? From the mouth? Well, in the Hebrew mind, the mouth was the beginning of the body, so it's train a child up from the beginning of his way. From the day they are born till the day they leave your home, we have to be dedicated. We've got to dedicate them. We have to be dedicated, and that means work. That means consistency. Now, we see the text. We see the text, but there's two questions I would have, two questions you might would have. First is this. What does this look like? What does this look like? It looks like this. 100% of our child's being, fiber, inclination, bent, has to be dedicated to the Lord. It's hard to say this. I've got three of my own. I've got three of my own. One of them might be with me in our home every day for his life. Every bit of them has to be dedicated to the Lord. We cannot hold back some of them for ourselves, for other family, for friends. All that they are, all that they will be, must be committed, to dedicated to the Lord. Okay, we painted the picture. Second question, how do I do that? <laughs> How do I do that, right? I'm sure some of our more seasoned people who are 29 with 50 years of experience being 29 would say they're still figuring that out. There are no easy answers, right? There are books upon books upon books written on this subject. There are sermons upon sermons, articles, blogs, videos, vlogs, all kind of podcasts that we could go to, and they all say different things. If you put 10 licensed family therapists in a room, you might get 15 different opinions on how to raise a child. Here's one thing. Here's one thing this morning. One thing, as I've gotten to know you, whether you're a grandparent, a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a parent, here's one thing I think will help all of us. It's called the head, heart, hands approach. Say that with me. Head, heart, hands. If we get this right, a lot of those other tips and tricks will click into place. All right? What does it mean, head? Head. These are lenses. These are perspectives. These are questions we must ask. If we ask, what does my child's head need? Do they know the knowledge of the faith? Do they have the data, the information, the facts? Do they have the Bible verses? Do they have the kingdom values, ethics, and morals? Do they have the beliefs? Do they know cognitively who our God is, what his heart is like? Do they have the data? If they don't, our task of training is clear. We have to impart information. Right, we've got to look at them. Is this a head issue? Head issue requires information. Heart, what's the heart? If we're gonna give them gospel information with the head, the heart is about motivation. Does my child have the head knowledge? Yes, okay. Do they want to live out the head knowledge? Do you see how this is a heart issue? This is an issue of motivation. How do we motivate them? Right, that might be the hardest question that we have. How do we motivate them? What can we do to provide godly motivation so they can be dedicated to living out that head knowledge? Here's what we do. There are times when you recognize that your child just doesn't wanna follow. We gotta learn the art of asking good questions. Get it at the heart of the matter. Helping use questions as a mirror to raise it up and let them see their life, where it could be headed, where their heart is at, and then we speak pieces of our testimony to them. 
We speak those times where we have seen the beauty and the goodness and the truth, where we've seen it pay off. We remind them of the gospel and how Jesus loved them enough to live for them and die for them and how that produces gratitude. Friends, this is easier said than done. I recognize it. If I had two years to preach, I could not be done talking about how to get the gospel in our children's hearts, but we've got to labor. We've got to be dedicated to dedicating them to the Lord through gospel motivation. Is it a head issue? Is it a heart issue? My tactics change. What about, have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen especially a little one where they know what they're supposed to do? They actually want to do it, but they're stuck. And then you could just see the hamster turning the wheel in their brain because they don't know how to live it out. Anybody ever seen that with your child? Yeah, what do we do in those situations? It's now a hands issue. It's a hands issue. If we have to impart gospel information, gospel motivation, in these circumstances, we need to recognize, oh, I need to impart gospel skills. I need to teach them how to manage their frustration, how to manage their temper, tips and tricks on how to speak when they are frustrated. Say this, not that. Daddy, I want to do this, but I don't know how. Okay, let's do it together. I'll show you. Do you see? How regardless of the book, regardless of the podcast, regardless of what mom or dad or grandpa taught you, if we look at them through the lens of the head, the heart, and the hands, you can chart a training course for your child so that you can keep them dedicated to the Lord, and it will renew and refresh you in your own dedication to that task. We've got to remember, we've got to remember both types of dedication. That's one. What's number two? Number two is this, we have to remember. We have to remember who they are. We have to remember who they are not. Look with me at the text again. Go to those next couple words. A child, a child. When you look at that word child, na'ar, in the Hebrew, when you look at how it is used in other parts of the Old Testament, you will see that a child or a youth can refer to an infant. It can refer to a young boy. It can refer to Abraham's son, Ishmael, when he was 13 years old. It can refer to Joseph, Jacob's son, when he was 17 years old. That's quite the spectrum, right? Birth until the day they leave the home. We have to remember that they are youth. Child there is a spectrum. It is not a little infant, not a little toddler. It is all of it. It is the entire spectrum of day one till the day they leave. We have to remember that they are youth. A lot of you say, well, duh, I get that. I know they're a youth. I know they're not me. Hold on. Hold on. How easy is it to forget that when we're in the moment? Right? Like when we're parenting them, our emotions can sometimes run a little bit high, or we can sometimes feel the weight of, uh oh, what do I do here? And I think we can forget that they are youth. Here are some things we need to remember in order to remember that they are youth. We have to remember who they are as youth and who they are not as youth. I'm going to speak from my experience as a youth pastor. I'm going to speak from my experience as a father. But what I really want to do is give you the distilled wisdom I've received from our elders, a couple of ladies in the congregation, and an 80-year-old man who is the godliest man I know. We'll just survey all of them, and let's walk through who they are, who they are not. Let's start with who our youth are not. Not. First, our youth are not a computer. See some grins, like, huh? Our youth are not a computer. You cannot just upload information or stick a data stick into their brains and assume that it's locked away, it's in there, good forever. 
No, their brains grow, their memory grows, their ability to process and understand, to grasp and apprehend or comprehend grows. We have to keep reminding them, we have to keep telling them, we have to keep bringing them back to the same truth, but maybe now in a little bit deeper way. And maybe now that they're a teenager, maybe even in a deeper way, right? We cannot treat our youth as a computer. We have to be patient and consistent. We have to remind them. Our youth are not a computer, but our youth are also not employees. They're not employees. What do we mean by that? I mean this. Our fundamental relationship to our children is not performance-based. Our children are not, at their deepest level, related to us by how well they're doing or how poor they're doing. That is a works-based scale. That is not a grace-based scale. Friends, please, okay, please do not hear what I am not saying. There are consequences in the Rogers household. If you don't uphold the standard, there is accountability. There are rewards in the Rogers household. They come home and they got the A plus on the test or they finally figured out a certain art project or scored their first run in softball. We're going to Cold Stone. We're going to Baskin Robbins. I'm not saying don't have consequences. I'm not saying don't have rewards. I am saying our deepest relationship to them can never be that. This means we can never scold them. We can never nag them. We can never withdraw affection or hand them coldness as a consequence for their actions. There is a sense where because our children are not employees, they have to unquestionably know that mom and dad are for them, are for them, are in their corner. And being for someone is not something you can just tell them. You got to show it. You gotta show it. No, we have to be for them. They've gotta know that. If they do not know that mom and dad are for them, if they think they're on a a consequence reward scale, they will search for that affection, they will search for that forness from another source, which will usually be the wrong crowd. And then, if I may say it, there will be hell to pay in their life and hell to pay in your life as well. They're not computers, they're not employees. What else are they not? They're not adults. They're not adults. How often do we forget that when we're in the moment? I am so guilty of that. They cannot yet do what we can do. We have to give them realistic expectations, realistic chores. We have to give them realistic targets that they can actually hit to build their confidence and then stack on more as we see them handling it. We can never even, this is my case, unintentionally put too much onto them that puts them in a no-win situation where they feel like they can never get it right and they just walk around discouraged. They're not computers, they're not employees, they're not adults. What else does it mean that they're not an adult? It means this, it means this. It means they're going to grow and change and develop. Our parenting methods must grow and change and develop as they do too. Could I lean into the godliest man I know, one of the godliest men I know, Buck Oliphant, an 80-year-old man who's a pastor in Texas? He has 10 children who are all walking with the Lord, 10 grown children all walking with the Lord, 22 grandchildren, many of whom are also already walking with the Lord. He knows every single child's name, every single grandchild's name, even though he's getting into his 80s. He has been a faithful pastor for 50 years, and he has taught me so much about parenting. Since I'm not an expert on teenagers, I would not even call myself an expert parent. Can we take a page out of his book? 
Can I share the wisdom he gave to me? He said there's three stages as they grow. First is roughly zero to eight years old, where you are the commander. Your task as a parent is to be the commander. By the time they hit somewhere around the age of eight, your authority must be a firm thing in their life. That's your key task, commander. From eight to 16, you start to transition to where at the age of 16, you are as much a coach as you are the commander. Coach still has authority. What coach says goes. He sets the lineup. But there's more interaction. There's more questions. There's more of the why. And then from 16 to somewhere around 24, you transition. And from what I'm told from many of you, that sweetness of companionship starts to kick in. At each one of these phases, commander, coach, and then companion, we have to think about, okay, what does it look like for them in this stage of life? How do I parent? How do I accomplish that key task that will help them be dedicated to the Lord? Friends, they're not adults. We have to grow and move our parenting style with them. What else are they not? They are not peers. They are not peers. It, is, it has become popular since a man named Dr. Spock, not the Star Trek one, but, but a child psychologist, wrote a book, and in those circles since that time, it has become popular to try to get parents to become friends with their children and to guide them and to let their guidance flow through the friendship. That is not the biblical model of parenting. Yes, there will be warmth. Yes, there will be joy. Yes, there will be those times at Jake's warehouse sitting together, dorking around on the iPad, playing Legos, tickle fights, learning brand new games on the trampoline, and it will feel like friendship. But we have to have a line that says, I'm not your friend, I am your father, and that settles it. They are not computers, they are not employees, they are not adults, they are not our peers. So what are they? What are they? As we train our youth, we have to remember they have a soul. They have a soul. They have a soul. What does this mean? What does this mean? Because they have a soul, it means that they are little image bearers. They're little image bearers. God loved them enough to make them and create them. He loved them enough to assign them to you, a Christian parent. And he loved them enough to send his son Jesus to die for them so that they could be remade in Jesus. Does God not love them, these little souls? When we remember that they're souls, they have a soul, this guides and shapes our discipline, our correction. Can we talk about spanking? Yeah, in the Rogers household, we spank. It is okay to spank. But friends, when you remember that little image bearer has a soul, you will never spank out of anger. You will never spank to get even with them. You will never spank to pour out your wrath. You will never spank to establish dominance or show them who the boss is. Your discipline, your correction will be tempered. It, it will have love. It will have care. It will have their best interests at heart. What else does it mean that they're a soul? It means this. A soul has to be wooed. A soul has to be won. A soul has to be loved. A soul needs comfort in the midst of heartbreak. A soul needs to be sheltered from injustice. A soul will have teary eyes that need to be wiped away by a soft thumb or a tender smile. 
But a soul is also something else. A soul is an individual. Each one of our children are uniquely made, uniquely wired, have unique capacities, have unique giftings. And that means we are constantly, even as we move through commander, coach, and companion, we are consistently updating, assessing, where are they, who are they, how did God design them? And then we tailor our parenting to move them in that direction as we recognize they are unique souls. Our children, our youth, have souls. What else do they have? They have a sin problem. They have a sin problem. Ever since Adam and Eve, every single human being born on this earth, save Jesus Christ, has been born in sin. They've been born in sin, born in the bondage to the slavery of sin. It's like, thanks, Pastor John. Happy Father's Day. All their youth are like, Pastor John is not coming back to grace students, right? Do not let that man back. Here is the beauty in recognizing and owning that truth. When their little fists curl up in the grocery store and they do what we call grouper lips, right? Where that lower lip, this is, this is grouper lip, right? They do that and they stomp the ground. They are not your enemy. When you see rebellion and hardness in your teenager's heart because you see it in their eyes, they are not your enemy. Who is your enemy in that moment? Satan, sin, and death. They are not your enemy. Satan, sin, and death is your enemy. Your youth is not your enemy. And guess in that moment who your youth's biggest enemy is? It's not you. It's Satan, sin, and death. You have the same enemy as that moment, in that moment, as your child, as your youth does that drastically alters and shapes how you parent in that moment. When you recognize my job is not to win, to crush, my job is to rescue. I see my child headed down a path of God's wrath. Your task in that moment is to, to be Jesus's agent of rescue. It is to do what you can to get the gospel, to get Jesus Christ between God's wrath and your child. When you remember that, when you have this perspective of who your true enemy is, who their true enemy is, that they need rescue, that they need their chains broken, that right there gives you so much grace, so much patience. It tempers your temper. It makes you compassionate, soft-hearted. It takes you from angry at them to sad and broken-hearted over what's going on as you see them rebelling. Do you see how that changes your parenting? When you remember who they are and who they are not, oh friends, you will be so much better at selecting the right word, the right technique, in the right moment, and from the right heart. We have to remember who they are and who they are not. What's the third and final thing we have to remember? The third and final thing we have to remember is this. Remember. As you remember both types of dedication, as you remember who they are, as you remember who they are not, remember and never forget that you will make an impact. You will make an impact. Let's go to the second line in verse six. Train up in the child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. For some of these, for some of you in here, these words are a joy. You see your child tracking and trending in that direction. You see your grown child living that life out, and you're so proud, and you're so thankful. Some of you are like me, where it's on the horizon. It's like, is it going to happen? <laughs> right? And it's, Ugh. wait, no, that's not holy. I'm sorry. Right? Like, but we're there. 
For some of us, though, these words are haunting. They're haunting. It makes you turn inside and ask, what did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? How do we respond to this with this spectrum of responses to this verse? Where do we go? Here's the first place I want to go. Here's the first place I want to go. Let's go here. We need to understand what Proverbs are. There is law in Proverbs. There are promises in Proverbs. But the book of Proverbs is primarily this. It is not primarily promises that happen 100% of the time. Input X, get output Y. They describe general principles. What Solomon and the other authors of Proverbs are doing is this. They are taking their real-life observations and distilling them down into general principles that work. In fact, scholar and author, Pastor Paul Koptak, says it so well. He says, the ancient proverb was never designed to be an absolute guarantee of what will always be true in every case, without exception, but rather as an accurate observation of the basic laws of life. Do you hear that? General principle. And then he turns specifically to this proverb when he says, more often than not, more often than not, children who have been reared by loving parents, who have patiently and consistently taught them God's truth and ways through instruction, discipline, and modeling, will grow up to walk obediently with God. What does this mean for you and me that it's a general principle? It means this. If you are here and you think you see your child drifting, if you are here and your grown child has departed the faith, please look at me. It is not your fault. Have you put in the honest effort? Like not, not, not like perfect effort, but honest effort. It is not your fault fault. It is on the Holy Spirit to change a heart, to give the gift of faith, to apply the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to your child's heart. It is not your fault. These words are written to give you something to strive to, not something to judge yourself by. That is not who your God is. That is not his fatherly heart towards you. Do you hear it? It's not your fault. What else does it mean? What else does it mean? It means this verse contains a wonderful truth, a wonderful truth, and that truth is this. You will make a kingdom impact when you train up your child the way this passage describes and calls us to. You will make a positive impact. As you seek to train your child to love Jesus and to follow Jesus, you will leave an impact that will last into your child's old age. It may be that you will see your child come to faith in Jesus at an early age and see them track on into the day Jesus calls them home. It may be that you go through a season, shorter or longer, where they are rebellious and running away, and later in life they come back. It may be, it may be, let me bring it down. It may be that you never see them come to faith until you go to meet Jesus. It may be after that. We don't know. We don't know. But even if this is you, I want you to take heart. I want you to take heart. Why? Because if you train them up in the faith, you are making an impact as long as they draw breath. Not as long as you draw breath, as long as they draw breath. 
Oh, you may train them up, and they may not adopt your ways. They may not adopt God's ways, but they will not forget your ways. They will not forget God's ways. Even after you are long gone, your words, your presence, your instruction, your coaching, your advice, your love, the memories they have of you will continue to call them to Jesus. They may not adopt it, they will not forget it, and who you are and your efforts on behalf of Jesus to dedicate them will forever be the pebble in their shoe or the pea under their mattress. It will be Jiminy Cricket sitting on their shoulder calling them to Jesus Christ. You will make an impact regardless of the outcome. And that right there is good news. Is that hard to believe? Is that not hard to trust when you're on this side of parenting and you haven't seen the promise, the hope, the help come true? Oh yeah, oh yeah it is. How do we get that trust that we will make an impact? Here's my answer and we're gonna close with this. You need to go back through the Bible and see your father's heart for children. You need to see his power put on display in the service of children. You need to see his love for children, right? Like we go to the Garden of Eden. Eve kicks out. Eve duffed it. Eve, big fail, F minus, right? But what does God do? He gives her Cain and Abel. Does anybody know what the word Cain means, the name Cain means? It means I have gotten a man with the help of the, say it. Lord, Lord, even though Eve departed from God's ways, she got Cain and Abel. Even though Cain departed from God's ways, killed his brother Abel, God gave Adam and Eve more sons and daughters. Isn't that amazing? Let's go forward in human history to Noah. When no one walked with God and Noah was the only one found to be righteous, receive favor in God's sight, did God just save Noah? No, he saved Noah's boys. He saved their families. He's pro-family. He's pro-father, he's pro-mother, he's pro-child. Let's go to Abraham and Sarah who could not have a child together. She was barren for 90 years. And then when she's 90, God opens her womb. I don't know how a 90-year-old lady gives birth, right? Goes through labor and makes it to the other end. But they did, she did. And what does little Isaac's name mean? Anybody know? Laughter, very good, laughter. God was for them. Let's fast forward. Go to Joseph. Yeah, I heard a little one. There we go. All right. Go to Joseph. When Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, he was away from his father's protective sheltering. Jacob could not influence his boy. He could not finish the process of raising his boy. But guess what? God stepped in. He sheltered Joseph. He took care of Joseph. He elevated Joseph. They kept trying to put Joseph down. What did Joseph do? Becomes the vice president of Egypt. God is for us. He's for children. That's not all. Let's go to the Exodus. When they're at Mount Sinai receiving the law, God put into the law, you better take care of orphans. You better not mistreat them. Why? Because I'm a father to the fatherless. Our God is for children. It does not stop there. We can go to the prophet Elijah, the prophet Elisha, where both of these men were used of God to resurrect dead children. This continues into the New Testament. We see our father's heart for his son, Jesus. How? By preparing the way, sending John the Baptist, by warning Mary and Joseph, hey, Herod's gonna kill the boy, get him to Egypt. We see our father's heart on display in the New Testament. And then in the life of Jesus, we see this heart continue from father to son. When Jesus says, 
If you have received one of these children in my name, you may as well have received me. We see his heart for children when he threatens us. If we cause them to stumble or sin, we may as well do what? Tie a millstone around our neck and go jump in an ocean. We see it in his calling the children to him. We see it in his healing a convulsing little boy. We see it in his raising a little girl from the dead, even though people are making fun of him. Our God and Father, our God and Savior, have a huge heart, apply their huge power towards children. And where do we see this most spectacularly? We see it most spectacularly when God the Father rose God the Son from the dead. And then he sent God the Holy Spirit to take that victory and to apply it to our lives. Oh, do you see your Father God's heart for you? You and I have not lived this passage out as parents, but we are also the children who have departed and gone our own way. And what does he do despite our sin? He sends his son to stand in our place. Why? He's that powerful. He's that loving. He's that good. Do you see the power in your corner? Do you see fathers and mothers? Do you see that as you train up a child in the way he should go, your father in heaven will not depart you. He is with you. He is for you. What a wonderful motivation and encouragement to remember, to remember the two types of dedication, who they are, who they are not. And oh, friends, as you do those two things, you will remember that you are making an impact. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, you really are a good father. Father God, we love you. Father God, you are so kind to us. Father God, you show us what it's like to be a, a dad or a mom. Father, you even give those who cannot have children the opportunity to have spiritual children. Father, please be with our parents. Father, please grow them, please raise them, please be with the future parents. Father, please be with the grandparents who can take these same principles and apply them. Oh, Father, we love you, we thank you that we get in some small way to bear your image as a father in our parenting and in our raising and training of youth. Father, please encourage us, please strengthen us to go out into this week and the weeks beyond and live these truths out. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.